Today's scripture reading comes from the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 17. A champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistine said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a fan, uh, give me a man and let us fight each other. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. For 40 days, the Philistine came forward every morning and evening and took a stand. David said to Saul, Let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. Saul replied, You are not able to go out against this Philistine and fight him. You are only a young man and he has been a warrior from his youth. Meanwhile, the Philistine, with his shield-bearer in front of him, kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and it despised him. He said to David, Am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds, and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, You come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I'll give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. As the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly towards the battle line to meet him. Reaching into his bag and taking out a stone, he slung it and struck the Philistine on the forehead. The stone sank into his forehead, and he fell face down on the ground. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine and killed him. David ran and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword and drew it from the sheath. After he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. When the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turned and ran. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. All right, good morning. My name is Aaron, and I am one of the pastors here at Exilic. And I want to begin this morning with a rhetorical trivia question. And that question is this. Take a guess what the most repeated and frequent command in the Bible is. You would think that it would be love. Right? Love God, love your neighbors, uh, because love is the greatest commandment. 
However, it is not the most repeated and frequent commandment in the Bible. The most frequent and repeated command in the Bible is fear not. And I remember the first time I heard that, I, I, I wondered to myself, why, why fear not? Why not love? Why not do justice? Why not be compassionate, merciful, hospitable? Why is the most frequent and repeated command in the Bible to fear not? And I think a part of the reason why fear not is the most repeated command is simply because as, as strong as we like to portray ourselves to be to everyone else, uh, deep down in our core, to be human is to be afraid. Uh, and so if I can share some personal things. Uh, my grandfather, my great-grandfather, my great-great-grandfather, none of them live past the age of 60. And I don't know where Pastor Gina is, but I can almost hear him say, dude, that means you got like two, three years left of your life. <laughs> but there is a part of me that's like, a small part of me that's a little bit afraid that I won't make it past 60 just because of, you know, my family, my, my family tree. And, you know, I won't be able to see my girls grow past their mid-20s. To this day, uh, I am still afraid of public speaking. I still have to use the bathroom every time before I speak. Same thing when I played high school ball. Before every game, got to use the bathroom. Adrenaline's pumping. Um, and, and it's just scary. I mean, giving a TED Talk, a brand new TED Talk every single week. Terrifying to hundreds of people, who knows who's watching online. Still, I'm still to this day afraid of public speaking. Um, a few years ago, my daughter is, uh, she has nut allergies. She's anaphylactic. She ate a cookie with walnuts in it. One bite, one nibble of this cookie. And she's, she almost stopped breathing. We jumped in an Uber and at one point, I thought she died in my arms. I was terrified, scary. Uh, when I was in my 30s, and maybe, maybe one or two of you can relate to this, uh, but when I was in my 30s, I was afraid that um, maybe, maybe marriage is not in the cards for me. Maybe this is not gonna happen. And it took a long time for me to sort of get to a point where I was healthy enough to, to, to be okay with that. Uh, because I knew that marriage was not ultimately the solution to, to deal with my fears of, of, of uh, being single for however long of my life. So those are just some of the things that I've been scared about in the past. Those are some of the things that I'm still scared about. And if we had the time, I could probably list easily 10 or 12 other things in addition to that. But I do not want to make this time just about me. I also want to make this time about you. What are some things that scare you? What are some things that you are afraid about? It could be you, you have a fear of loneliness. It could be that you have a fear of meeting new people. You're new to the city, new to work, new to this church, and you're scared of, you know, starting making new friendships. You might be afraid of having that awkward conversation with someone because you don't really want to have that conversation and you don't know how it's going to go. I was talking with one couple who are trying to have kids right now and over the span of one month, three different people came up to them and said, why would you want to bring kids into this world? And so there's this fear of the future, fear of this dystopian world that we live in. What scares you? 
What are some of the things that you are fearful uh, and terrified about? And I think this is where the, the, the tips that some of our self-help gurus give is somewhat helpful. Uh, so one of the things that our, our self-help friends will say is things like, you know, when you're afraid, what happens to your physical body is that it gets agitated. So um, your heart is racing, adrenaline's pumping, palms are sweaty. But what's interesting about our bodies is that when we're afraid and when we're excited, it's the exact same response. When you're excited, body's agitated, uh, heart is racing, palms are sweaty. When you're fearful, body's agitated, heart is pumping, uh, palms are sweaty. And so what self-help people will say is, if your body's reaction to fear and excitement is exactly the same, all you have to do is hack your brain and trick your brain into thinking that you're not scared, but you're actually really excited. So take a deep breath, count to 10, replace that scary thought with a serene, happy thought, and you can go from, oh no, what am I gonna do, to ah, this sort of like zen-like status. And while I do think that there are some helpful things that self-help gurus teach us about this, I don't think that they're ultimately, ultimately helpful in handling our fears. The biblical response to handling our fears is to replace your fear with fear. Now, what in the world does that mean? How do we do it? Okay, so take a look with me at verse 8 through 10. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? And are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. Then the Philistines said, This day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. So the story of uh, David and Goliath is one of the most iconic uh, stories in the Bible. Um, if you're familiar with the popular writer Malcolm Gladwell, uh, Gladwell has even written an entire book on the story of David and Goliath. So even if you're not familiar with the Bible, chances are you're familiar with these two iconic figures, David and Goliath. And of course, David, uh, Goliath is this towering, majestic figure. And what Goliath does here is that he proposes a practice in ancient warfare called single combat. And in single combat, uh, one army would send one representative. The other army would also send one representative, and they would fight one another. And single combat was a way of settling disputes without gallons of blood being spilled by all of the armies. Okay, so twice a day, morning and evening, for 40 days, for a total of 80 times, Goliath would come down the, uh, from the mountain to the valley, and he would invite one Israelite to a schoolyard fight. And as the Israelites are hearing this, uh, this taunting taking place, they are filled with terror. And in verse 11, it says this, On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed 
and terrified. Now, why were they terrified? They were terrified because as they were hearing Goliath's words, their fears drove their imaginations to the worst scenarios possible. So their fears drove their imagination to think about Goliath taking his large paws around their throats, strangling them to death. Their fears drove their imagination to Goliath's javelin and spear piercing their bodies like a kebab. Their their fears drove their imagination to, to his baritone voice and laughter being the last things that they hear as they utter their final breath. Their fears drove their imagination to thinking about their wives and children becoming enslaved all because you could not beat this man. And so that's the, thing, that's the thing about fear. Fear is a chauffeur that drives our imagination to the worst scenario possible, instilling a lot of anxiety and fear within us. The first century philosopher Seneca says, we suffer more often in imagination than in reality. Now again, this is a rhetorical question. But for how many of us, how many of us live in imaginary worlds rather than reality? And oftentimes what our fears make us do, they force us to play the what if game. What if this happens? What if that happens? And we start living in these imaginary worlds as if they're reality. And as a result of that, we're mentally drained, emotionally exhausted, and paralyzed in what we're able uh, to do. So let me ask you again, do you live more in your imagination than in reality? When you let your fears live rent-free in your head, they are nothing but squatters that have no right or business living up there. They have no business living up in your head. And so in contrast to the people who are filled with terror and fear, David did not let his fears uh, run, uh, live rent-free in his head. Instead of letting his fears drive his imagination to the worst scenario possible, David lets his fears drive his imagination ultimately to God. And this is what we see in verse 32. David said to Saul, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. So here's the question. How was David able to be so courageous when Goliath was so scary? How was David able to be so courageous when everybody else was so terrified and afraid of him? Uh, because take a, look with, uh, take a look with me at verse 41 to 44. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David over and saw that he was little, a little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. So Goliath is not only physically very intimidating, but he's verbally very intimidating as well. And this is why all the Israelites are filled with fear. They are overly fearful in contrast to Goliath, who is almost overly fearless. And this is also what ultimately leads to Goliath's downfall. 
He had no fears whatsoever uh, at all. And fear, and the reason why I say that is because fear is not only a negative thing, but sometimes it can be a very positive thing if we have the right kind of fear and the right amount uh, of fear. Fear keeps us humble and grounded. Fear reminds us that we are not God. Fear can sometimes prevent us from making careless mistakes. So if you're riding a city bike in Midtown and you have no fear, you know what's going to happen? You're going to get hit. Okay? The right kind of fear, right amount of fear, is not always a negative thing, but sometimes it can be a very positive thing. The problem with Goliath is he has no fear whatsoever. Courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is a boldness in the presence of fear. Goliath has no fear whatsoever, and this ultimately leads to his downfall. But look at the kind of fear and the amount of fear that David has. In verse 45 to 47, it says this, David said to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands and I'll strike you down and cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals. And the whole army, the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. All those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. For the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands. Look at how many times David references God. Over and over and over again, he's talking about God. The reason why David is ultimately not afraid of Goliath while everyone else is, is because David replaces his fear of Goliath with a fear of God. There are two kinds of fear. There's negative fear, where you let your fear drive your imaginations to the worst scenarios possible. But there's also a positive kind of fear where you let your fears drive your imaginations, not to the worst case scenarios, but you let your fear drive your imagination ultimately to who uh, God is. And so Proverbs 14, 26, whoever fears the Lord has a secure fortress. Psalm 34, 7, the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. So what does it mean to fear God? Here's my working definition of what it means to fear God. It doesn't mean to be scared or terrified of God, but here's my working definition of what it means to fear God. To fear God means having a hyper-awareness of his presence in your life. It is a hyper-awareness of his reality. It is a hyper-awareness that he is for you, not against you. The Israelites did not have a hyper-awareness of God. They had a hyper-awareness of Goliath, but they did not have a hyper-awareness of God. The fact that David references God over and over and over again means that he had a hyper-awareness of the presence of God in his life. And so here's what that means practically for us. What that practically means is that when your fears start, start to drive your imagination to the worst scenarios possible, what you have to do is you have to short-circuit that fear. 
you have to cut off that fear before your mind starts taking you to all these scenarios that haven't uh, even happened yet. And this takes some practice. Coming to church can help, uh, but ultimately one hour a week is not enough. And the reason why I say that is because ever since we've been young, we've been taking a master class on how to be afraid. When our parents tell us, don't talk to strangers, when we're on social media, when we watch our 24-hour news cycle, we are perpetually told to be scared and to be terrified. Every day, you are taking a master class on how to live in fear. And so what we have to do is replace that master class with the master class of God, replacing our fear with ultimately a fear of God. Now, how do we do that very practically? Well, study after study shows that we use our imaginations up to 25% of the day. And I realize that sometimes when we hear the word imagination, we simply view the word imagination in a pejorative sense. Oh, that's just your imagination. So it's something childlike, but it's not something that, you know, us adults, sophisticated, mature people do. But the truth of the matter is, we all use our imaginations up to 25% of the day. And what, what is the imagination? What are you doing when you're imagining something? You're imaging something that you cannot see. That's what it means to imagine something. So maybe two or three times a day, I lose my phone. So what do I do? I'm imagining where I last put it. What do you want to eat for lunch after service? You have to image something you can't see. What are your goals for 2022? You have to imagine or image something that you cannot see. We use our imaginations up to 25% uh, of the day. Now, you can let your fears drive those imaginations to the worst scenarios possible, instilling anxiety and worry in your life, or you can let your fear drive your imagination ultimately to who God is and what he has done for us. Now, how do we do that? Again, I think one hour a week is helpful. I don't know if it's enough. And I think one of the things that we have to learn how to do is put into our daily rhythms, daily rhythms, just like flossing, brushing your teeth, taking a shower, we have to put into our daily rhythms reminders on how to be hyper aware of his presence in our life. It could be reading a verse a day. It could be reading a chapter a day. One of the things that I sometimes do, not all the time, but which, which I need to get better at, but one of the things that I try to do is five one-minute prayers throughout the day. From the moment I wake up to the moment I sleep, I try to do five throughout the day to make me hyper aware of his reality in my life. It could be going to CG uh, once every other week. It could be fellowshipping with other people to remind you but you have to do something to insert into the daily rhythms of your life how to replace your fears with a fear of God. You don't do this, your other fears are going to win. So that choice is ultimately yours, but you have to put something into your daily rhythms to, to remind yourself of who God is because at the end of the day, as Christians, we do, do we not have the biggest resource to help us cope with our fears? Do we not have a big brother in Jesus Christ and a loving father who is greater than any Goliath-sized fears in our life? We do. But I want you to imagine a world for a moment where you did not have God in your life. And it sounds something like this. 
Andy Bannister says this, imagine for a moment that you're down on your luck. Life has dealt you a series of terrible hands and nothing seems to be going your way. You've recently lost your job. Your wife has just left you and taken the kids with her. This very morning, a letter from your bank has arrived declaring you bankrupt. The doctor's surgery has just rung to inform you that those worrying headaches are actually Crutzfeldt Jakob disease. Life is really sucky. However, have no fear. Put all that aside, fret no more, for there is hope. There is an end to all worries. There is, I hear you cry, wiping back the tears. Yes, there is, because there is no God. There's nobody out there who is ultimately going to help with any pulling. You're alone in a universe that cares as little about you and your enjoyment as it does about the fate of the amoeba, the ant, or the aardvark. There is no hope. There is no justice. Life favors the winners. Some get the breaks. Others get the sticky end of the stick. Enjoy your life. Nice work if you can get it. Now, I want you to imagine another world where you do have a God in your life. And what does this world look like? Take a look with me at verses four through five, and it says this, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze, weighing 5,000 shekels. The Hebrew word that is used here for champion simply is not like a Super Bowl champion, but the Hebrew word that is used here for champion simply means a middleman between two sides. So Goliath is a middleman representing his side and is in between the Israelite side. And if you take a look at this verse, one of the things that I find fascinating is that he, he wore a coat of scaled armor made out of bronze. In other words, if you can imagine this with me for a moment, Goliath almost looked like a giant serpent. And if you've ever read the Bible before, when you hear the word serpent, what are you reminded of? Genesis chapter 3, where this intruder or serpent comes into the garden. Okay, so here comes Goliath for 40 days, who looks like a giant serpent attacking the Israelites, saying that he's going to kill them. And then all of a sudden, another champion or middleman comes, a shepherd boy, an unlikely hero that no one believed in, an underdog. He comes down and represents the other side. And he ends up beating and conquering this giant. And in his victory, all the people get the victory. They don't do any work. This one person does all the work, and his victory is transferred to all of them. Now, when you hear that story, shepherd boy, underdog, unlikely hero, attack for 40 days in the wilderness, slays a giant, in his victory, we get the victory. What story does that kind of sound like? Story of Jesus, who's also a shepherd. Unlikely hero no one believed in, attacked by Satan for 40 days in the wilderness. And he does what Adam and Eve ultimately should have done in the garden when the serpent came in. They should have cut off the head of the serpent, but they did not. They listened to the serpent. But what Jesus ultimately does, just like David does, is he decapitates death. And in his victory, we too are now more than conquerors as well. He does all the work. 
we get all the benefits. Jesus Christ is the ultimate champion, the ultimate middleman who has fought our ultimate battle with death. And you know what death? 100% success rate. Death has never lost. It TKOs every one of us. But there is one person who defeats death. And that is him. And in him we have victory. Now think about this logically with me. If he handles our greatest terror and nightmare that makes us all weep, because we lose our loved ones and eventually we will lose our own lives. If he's handled that giant, don't you think he can handle the other giants in your life too? Your fear of loneliness, you don't think he can handle that? Your fear of maybe failure or living a life of mediocrity, you don't think he can handle that? Your fear of not having kids, you don't think he can handle that? Your fear of that awkward conversation, you don't think he can handle that? If he's handled the greatest enemy of all, the greatest fear of all, can he not also handle the other things in our life? The 16th century French philosopher Michel de Montaigne once said, my life has been full of terrible misfortune, most of which has never happened. Can I say that again? My life has been full of terrible misfortune, most of which has never happened. Oftentimes, we let our fears drive our imagination to the worst-case scenarios. It fills us with anxiety and worry. You know what anxiety and worry are? Anxiety and worry is when we imagine the future without God in it. It is the opposite of having a fear of God, having a hyper-awareness of his reality in our life. And so what we have to learn how to do is to short-circuit our fears, and we have to replace those fears with a fear of God. And here's how we do that. So this past week, I was reading the, another iconic passage in the Bible, Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. And I came across verse 4. And in verse 4, it says, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. It's just a simple reminder that even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, okay, and sometimes worst case scenarios do happen, I will still fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. It's a hyper awareness of his presence in our life. Now that, again, does not mean that everything will always be hunky-dory and go our way, but it does mean that ultimately we don't have to be afraid because he is with us. So let me just close with uh, this picture, Corey Ten Boon says, imagine you're riding on a train going through a super long, dark tunnel. You have two options. Uh, if you're afraid of the dark, you can just jump off the train. Or you can trust the train, you can trust the conductor of the train that as you go through this dark tunnel, there is a light at the end of the, end of the tunnel and they will help you get out. And similarly, as you guys go through the, these dark tunnels that are very terrifying and scary, you can jump ship or you can sit there and have unwavering trust, confidence, and a hyper-awareness of his reality in your life. And whatever you're going through, he will get you through this. He's done it in the past, and whatever dark valleys you're going through, he can do it in the present and in the future as well. 
So let, let, me, let me end by just saying this. What are you afraid about? What scares you? What terrifies you? Do you let your fears drive your imaginations to the worst scenario possible, or do you let your fears drive your imagination ultimately to God who loves and cares about you? Because at the end of the day, God is not imaginary. He is ultimate reality. Let's pray together. Lord, in many ways, to be fearful is to be human. My goodness, we are trained on a daily basis to be afraid of so many things, pandemics, wars, injustice, the stuff happening in our own personal lives, insecurity, precariousness with our jobs. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. And we have been daily trained and discipled, catechized in a master class on how to live like scaredy cats. So it is my prayer that this day that you would remind us and teach us how to short circuit those fears and to replace those fears with the fear of who you are. Give us a hyper awareness of your reality in our life, your presence that you are for us and not against us. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus I pray.